Well, good morning, guys. We're going to be going over the epistle of Titus. Titus is in the New Testament, and we're going to be going line upon line. This style is called expository or exposition. And so it is a wonderful way to read and study the Bible. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you this morning and you need one, we have them available for you and we can get you a Bible. But we're going to go ahead and open up your New Testament to the book of Titus as we prepare to read God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, we ask you that the eyes of our understanding be open so we would have the understanding of who you are. Lord, we pray that there would be grace to the hearers this morning and we would we would be trained in your word and that this would be a, a moment in which, uh, God, that you would speak to us through your word and that we would be doers of the word this morning. Amen. Well, for those of us joining online, good morning as well. It seems like the Facebook Live is... Great idea, Sonia. Good job. With the, that's a good idea. I forget about all of that, but let's go ahead and start. So authorship, Paul, the apostle, the preacher and apostle to the Gentiles, is writing to Titus. Titus was an understudy of Paul and a disciple of Paul. And remember, Paul had many friends. Most people, when they think of Paul, they think of the great miracles and the great churches that he planted. When I think of Paul, I'm always reminded of the end of Romans. And this is great list of people that he's greeting and people pass over it. But to me, it's a great indicator that Paul was a not only a spiritual leader, but a relational leader. He had friends and that the kingdom moved through his friendship. So Titus is one of Paul's friends. And Paul is telling Titus to set in order the things that are lacking. Paul is telling Titus to build up the believers and also to build up the church. So it's an instructional letter from an older, wiser Christian to a younger Christian and, and how to build up the church. And so it's very applicable for us today because many of us have small groups. Many of us are in ministry. Many of us have been serving the Lord for a long time. And so this letter is applicable for us today. So let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to go line upon line, expository style. This is the old style, the old way. So Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. Let's go ahead and stop there. So Paul is a doulos. Remember, a doulos is a servant, a bondservant. This is how the apostles and disciples of Jesus, uh, this is how they address themselves as slaves, bond slaves, love slaves of Jesus. This has an incredible back history of someone who was in indentured servitude or was in uh, servant, a slave to the house. He would literally, after his time was up and he had paid off all of his debts, would say, I love the master's house so much. I want to be associated in the house and I want to stay in the house and I want to I want to pledge myself 
to the honor of the house. And so what they would do is they would go to the doorpost and they would pinch their ear to the doorpost and they would be pierced to the wood by an awl, either through their nose or through their ear. And they put a, like a signet ring in their ear or in their nose, signifying that they were bond servants to the house. So anyone who saw that knew that that person represented that house. And with that authority of the house, they represented the house. And so it's not necessarily a negative term. It's actually a position of honor. And so, but Paul and the apostles, that's what's their title. They didn't consider themselves apostles in a sense. That wasn't a name that they dropped often, but they considered them love slaves, that they love the master enough to willingly serve the house and joyful obedience. And so that's a wonderful lesson for us. He, he goes on to say that, that Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, an apostle is a sent one, sent primarily to be a minister of the gospel. Jesus sent them to preach. When you think apostle or ap apostolic or apostleship, they're sent to proclaim. That's their primary function it's to preach or publicly herald the gospel. And so this was Paul's function. He tells Titus uh, that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He tells Timothy twice that he was an apostle, a preacher and teacher of the Gentiles. So if you want to know what Paul's occupation, think apostle, preacher and teacher. He says here that he's according to the faith of God's elect that word electos literally means the chosen. And so there's a huge uh, uh, movie series that's really popular right now. I highly recommend that's called the chosen. You could also call it the elect because it's the, it, literally the same word and the same concept in the Bible. To the faith of God's chosen or elect, the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness. So that's a good point, too. That if it's God's truth in your life, it's always going to lead and excel you in godliness. It, if it's truth, it's going to change you and it's going to conform you into the reality of God's kingdom and the reality of God's nature. That's truth. Truth, by definition, demands a response. And hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. God has had a plan to bring forth his gospel from the beginning of time, but has now in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Two incredible points already from the beginning here with Paul is that God manifests his word through preaching, that preaching is the function for God's word to be manifest. To, to, to be made manifest means to be made known or to reveal or to bring to the surface. So God's reality is brought to the surface. It is made real and known to people through the function of preaching. We don't preach just to be heard, but that God's word would be made manifest. And also notice here that it is a commandment of Jesus. It's not a great suggestion. It's not a uh, it's not a ministry for some. Paul considered the commandment of, of God's word going forth through preaching as a commandment of Jesus. So that's something we need to take into consideration. And once again, Paul, many times in this epistle, calls Jesus the Savior, God our Savior. 
to Titus, a true son and our common faith. That's a wonderful verse in verse four is the remember Paul has a heart of a father towards these men. Many times in the epistles, he calls his disciples sons. He calls Timothy, my beloved son. He writes to the others in the church. He says, you have many teachers, but few fathers. This shows the fatherhood nature of, of this discipleship relationship, that it's not just rules. It's not just information. It's life on life impartation and relationship. Grace, mercy, and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, that's a wonderful trinity right there. Grace, mercy, and peace. That's a wonderful expression of both what we need in our own lives personally. I could use more grace. I could use more mercy. I could use more peace. And also what we extend to others. William Barclay called Paul the apostle of grace. We need more grace with, with, with each other in these times. We need more mercy with each other in these times. And we need more peace now more than ever. But this all comes from the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason, I left you in Crete. This is the location. That's an island in the Mediterranean. That you should set and order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I've commanded you. So basically, remember, the apostolic pattern is to come in. Blow up the dynamite and set everything in order. Basically come in, proclaim the gospel in the marketplaces and in the synagogues and cause the stir. And people are interested and people get converted and you start baptizing them. And then all of a sudden you have a bunch of new converts. And the next thing that you have to do is you have to appoint elders. And so we have here in Titus and in Timothy, Paul's advice on who to appoint when you think elder, think overseer. Who's going to oversee this when the apostles go to the next town so that the crop doesn't just go to the wayside, that the church just doesn't fall apart or that it's protected? There needs to be somebody who's going to oversee it, not control it, but oversee it to make sure that it's healthy and that it continues. For this reason, he left him, Titus, in Crete. So Titus was an part of the apostolic band of Paul. He was part of the group that would travel from city to city, but Titus was specifically left here to set in order the things that were lacking and to appoint elders. So Paul goes here as he's going to go into the requirements of the eldership, which is very important because we could always be evaluating ourselves on these requirements. Because remember, an eldership and Christian leadership and oversight the Bible calls is a noble task. He who desires this work desires a good thing. It's actually an incredibly good and noble aspiration to have in your life. You know, sometimes you see these godly Christian men and they go, oh, no, 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 no. And that is the right humble heart. But also, this is a noble thing. It's a godly thing. If a man is blameless, verse 6. Now, if a man, Paul does put the requirement on the men there. If a man is blameless, that word for blameless means anepletos, which means there's no spot. It's there's no chink in the armor. What you see is what you get without reproach, that there's nothing that the enemy can say against you. There's no spot in your moral character that 
There's no weak spot. It literally means above reproach, that they can't even bring an accusation against you because of the character in which you live. So a man must be blameless. The husband of one wife, having faithful children, not being accused of dispatation or insubordination. That means unruly or riotous. It means that your children are in subjection under you. You know, if, you, if your children won't listen to you, why should people in the church listen to you? If you can't love and serve your children and your family in such a way to where they want to listen to you, then, then there's no reason why the church should listen to you. That's kind of the standard here, that you need to have your household in loving subjection to you. Because, you know, that, that's the thing. You can't, be a, uh, you can't be a street angel and a home devil. You can't be, uh, you know, you can't be godly around everyone and then ungodly to your family. It starts at home. Leadership starts at home. You know, your 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 biggest in, in Christian ministry, your biggest cheerleaders should be your wife and your children, right? Because you can you can fool everyone else, but you can't fool them. So that's what Paul's talking about. For a bishop must be blameless. As a steward. So once again, blameless is used again. As if you weren't paying attention. Once again. You know, we've seen recently many, many unfortunate events. And in, in, in the church as a whole. Big C church. Regarding uh, ministers of the gospel not being blameless. And it seems like overnight the world turns into holiness preachers. Overnight the world says, you shouldn't have done that. You known better. You didn't have to do such and such. And it's funny to me because uh, 24 hours earlier, the world's saying, oh, everybody sins. We're all the same. And then all of a sudden, when a preacher sins, now the world picks up the holiness mantle and begins to preach that they shouldn't have done that, that they known better, that they could have done otherwise. And so that's why it's so important that elders and ministers of the gospel live blameless lives. And remember, it's not a it's a want to. It's a heart change. It's a heart change to where you want to serve him and you want to live right before him and you get to. And it's a great privilege and not a, a, a burden. So if a man once again is blameless for a bishop must be blameless, not as, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Once again, I want to go back to this word steward. That means that you are being faithful to what you were entrusted, not as an owner, as it was yours, but as a steward, as in one day you will give an account for the things that God has entrusted you with. You know, remember, let not many of you become teachers, for you shall receive a stricter condemnation and a stricter judgment. There's going to be a greater there's going to be a greater requirement on Christian leaders than on on normal Christians. Because they are responsible for the flock of God. And so we're not to be self-willed. There needs to be humility. We're not quick-tempered. We're not rash in our decisions. And we're not violent. We're not given to much wine. or We're not drunkards, as the scriptures say. For those shall not inherit the kingdom. We're not violent. We're not strikers. We're not greedy for money. That's very, very important. That the cares of this world and the deceitfulnesses of riches don't choke out the seed. That we're not greedy for money. 
but hospitable. Did you know that hospitality was a criteria for Christian leadership? The other night I had a great privilege to be at my friend's Matt, Matt's house and he just brought out all of the goodies and all of the stuff and the queso and it was incredible. And, and so I felt what? Welcome. I felt welcomed. I felt loved. I felt appreciated. I felt honored. Hospitality is an incredible thing to put in your tool belt and it is a criteria for Christian leadership. You never thought about that, did you? You never thought that the, you know, the appetizer was an indicator whether you were right with God. <laughs> but hospitality is a huge deal. And it's a, it's a way that we can silently speak. And so it says here that we're to be a lover of what is good. A bishop is a lover of what is good. That we're sober-minded. That we're just. That means we're righteous we're holy and we're self-controlled. Number nine, holding fast the faithful word as you have been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine. That means not hollow doctrine, solid doctrine, solid tested doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now, the word there for uh, exhort is, is the, what I call the Christian catch-all. It's the word parakaleo. And it's an incredible verb in the Greek. And it literally means, honestly, almost, it means to come alongside. But it's used by Paul as everything. If you need to encourage someone, parakaleo. If you need to support them, parakaleo. If you need to rebuke them, parakaleo, admonish, chide, reproof, to bring correction, to expose. It's literally the Swiss army knife of Christian ministry words. And it is, it's actually the basis for the word of a description of Holy Spirit, paraclete, parakaleo. It's that basis of whatever is, think this, whatever is needed at the time to build this person into Christian maturity Think Swiss Army knife, parakaleo. And so Paul is saying here that we use the faithful word. We use the scriptures and sound doctrine to, to bring whatever is needed at the time to those who are contradicting. And order, what's the purpose? Do we contradict and, and, and convict and convince those for that sake just to have an argument or to be right? No, to bring them back into the place where they're supposed to be, to bring them into the image and likeness of the Son. Remember, the whole point of Christian ministry is till we all come to the unity of the faith. Until we all come to the unity of the faith. Until we all look and talk and act like Jesus. That is the purpose of Christian leadership. Verse 10. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of idleness and a lot of idle talking. And deceivers. So once again, we're now into the warning stage. We're now into the Paul said, OK, this is what Christian leaders need to do. But there's going to be people coming. 
and there's going to, they're going to be talking and they're going to be deceiving. And Paul is going to give you their description on how they operate and how to handle them. So he's helping us here. He's helping Christian leaders be ready and be on guard for the deceivers and the deception and the works of the enemy that is going to work through people to try to get against God's holy church. Especially those of the circumcision. Now, this was specifically something that Paul was dealing in, in the ancient church is that they would go and preach the liberty that is found in Christ Jesus. People would get saved and immediately people would come up against uh, Judaizers would come in and say, well, I know you're a Gentile, but in order to be a real Christian, you have to follow the 613 laws of Moses. And let's start this sign by circumcision. And Paul goes, no way. And if you want more on that, go ahead and read the, the epistle of Galatians. And it talks about how by the works of the flesh, no one is justified. And that if you began the faith and grace in Christ, how can you continue it through the works of the law? Not to set the works of the law aside, but that that saying that salvation is through grace, through faith. And Galatians is an incredible epistle for that concept. Now, whose mouth must be what? Stopped. Paul wants these mouths to be stopped. He wants their words to be stopped. They subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. You know, Paul made it a point never, never to never to put himself as an economic burden on individuals, especially new churches, because he didn't want to hinder the gospel. He says, for your sake, I became poor, although I had every right to ask. I didn't ask from brand new churches, brand new church plants, because he didn't want to hinder the gospel. He says he worked with his own hands. It wasn't until later he puts this expectation on mature believers to provide and fund the ministry. But make that distinction. For, for the sake of dishonest gain, one of them as a pro prophet of theirs said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now this is in the Bible. So this, this is the apostle speaking. And he, he's, he's just coming at it straight down the pipe. He's, he's using their own prophets to go against this me first, self-centered, I'm going to take advantage of you to get what I want, this covetous attitude. And so verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be what? Sound in the faith. Most people have a misunderstanding of church discipline. They think church discipline is, is to be right. The purpose of church discipline is that they would be sound in the faith. And hear me now. Usually by the time that you know that you know that it's time to have church discipline, it is honestly usually too late. When it's time to, you know that you have to have the conversation, usually it's too late. And so you need to listen. the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit often says, hey, you need to go talk to that person. And remember, not so that you would be right, but that they would be sound in the faith. And so we're not to give heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. So important. Major on the major. 
Minor on the minors. If it's not a salific issue, if it doesn't pertain to life and godliness, if it, it's not going to endanger someone and their salvation, then we need to focus on Christ and his mission. And so we have that centrality of focus, focusing on who Jesus is, what he has called us to do, and not to be distracted by the things that come up on the edges. Because there's a lot of stuff that comes up on the edges, which is not central to our mission and focus. And so much wasted time can be used. You know, like the, every month there's this new false doctrine that comes up and attacks the church. And do I need to focus on that? No. My job is to focus on Christ and his scriptures and his church to uplift the people around me. That's the purpose because, hear me out, I'm not saying that, that false doctrine is not important, but I'm just saying we have to focus on the real. I want to go back to uh, a great illustration. The Secret Service doesn't just guard the president. They also guard our treasury. In fact, if you work in the Secret Service, one of the first things that you do for the first hundred days is you, for an entire year, of your occupation, you stare at a $100 bill. Every day, all day long, you look at a $100 bill. You examine it in the light, you can rip it, you can tear it, you can burn it, you can taste it, you can examine all the marks and all the watermarks and all of the, all of the, how it looks when it's folded, how it looks in the light, how it looks in UV light. You become an expert with the original. You don't look at a counterfeit bill for a year. And so when you are an expert in the original, with your expert in the genuine, is it easy to spot a counterfeit? Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. And so as, as Christian ministers and leaders in the church, our, our job is not to run after every single thing. That's, we're to spend our time gazing at Jesus, looking unto him, the author and perfecter of our faith, or spend our time in love with him, reading his word, studying his word. And so it is easy to be able to spot something that is not lining up with the genuine article, Jesus. And so let that be a lesson for us that we're, we're to hold fast this, fast this faithful word. Verse 15, so important. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their minds and consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but in their works they deny him. Becoming abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Paul was saying that there's nothing more important than a clean conscience. He's saying that if your conscience is not clean and right before God, it affects everything. It affects your understanding. It affects your revelation. It affects your knowledge. It affects your ministry. It, and it disqualifies you from every good work. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, you're completely defiled. There's no partiality with Paul. That means if you are living and known rebellion against God, it has affected everything and you don't even know it. Even your understanding, even your own conscience is now being affected. So this is the danger. They profess to know God. Oh, yeah, I know Jesus. Oh, yeah, I love Jesus. But in their works, 
they deny him. I believe that's a majority of American Christianity. They profess that they know God, but they live in habitual sin and rebellion towards him. And Paul says right here, to the defiled, all are defiled, even their mind and consciences, that they're abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Now, I know that's heavy, but this is what the Bible says, and I'm not going to just cut passages out. And this is why it's so important, because if the, if the people are defiled, the church will be defiled. But Jesus is coming back for a pure church without spot and without wrinkle. This is why this is the instruction that he gives in chapter two. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Notice he's giving the juxtaposition. He's, he's giving the answer to this horrible problem that he's describing. He's saying, but for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine that the older men may be sober, reverent, that means holy, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. He now speaks to the older women. Likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Notice that primarily to the men, he's talking about their actions and to the women, he's talking about their words. Usually men sin in their actions, usually women sin in their words. And so he's giving the wisdom here that they admonish the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. For some of the young men in the room, you're looking for uh, a candidate for marriage right there, right there. Verses four and five of Titus, you would have never thought, but there it is. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a, a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. For all the young men, you need to be highlighting that. And what does Paul say? That there would be a pattern of good works. Nine times out of ten, when Christians use the word works, it's almost always in a negative context. They're always saying, well, we're not saved by works. And, and works is almost has a negative connotation in the Christian church nowadays. But Paul says to have a pattern of good works. We are not saved by our works. We are saved to our works. I'm getting fired up. I'll, I'll put the, sorry. They're going, you want me to pull them out or put them in? Put them in or out? I'll put them out. Okay, here we go. We're not saved by our works, but we are saved to our works. We are God's workmanship that he has created in us for the work. So there's a work to be, do, to be done. And so we, we, work should not have a negative connotation in our life as Christians. Jesus says, the day is coming when no man may work, labor while it is day. And so verse 8, sound speech that cannot be condemned that one who is opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say against you. Once again, that you're blameless. So the third time, the concept of blamelessness, that there's no accusation, there's no foothold to the enemy, there's no spot of your life in your moral character that you're praying to God that's never exposed. 
that, that literally what you see is what you get, a sincere faith, a clean conscience. Verse number nine, exhort the bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, and not answering back, not stealing, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. That's an incredible concept of adorning the doctrine. That basically, that the teachings of Christ, are when they're properly presented, they are beautiful. It is literally that concept of adornment. It's like jewelry. That when you are properly presenting the great truths of the wisdom of the kingdom, people want it. So if you've been in ministry a long time, and you've been talking to people, and that none of the people are getting converted, you are doing it wrong. Because the, the teachings of Christ should be adorned. They should be attractive. If I was giving away free jewelry outside and it was nice jewelry, would people want it? That's the concept. I'm not talking about gaining money. I'm not talking actually about jewelry. But I'm talking about we should present the gospel in such a way that people want it. It should be adorned. Now this is, this is it. Guys, if you've heard nothing I've said this morning. Please pay attention right now. This is the most desperately needed concept for the American church right now is a biblical understanding of grace. So if you are paying attention, please pay attention right now. We're going to be going over Paul's biblical definition of grace. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he may redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. 11 through 15, memorize it, study it. Biblical grace is not a covering for you to do what you selfishly want to do. Biblical grace is God, God's teacher and influence in your life to teach you to live soberly, righteously, godly, to live holy now. Notice what age is it talking about? In this present age, grace is our teacher to live holy now. Grace is our teacher to live godly now. Most people view death as their savior. Well, I can't wait to die so that I'm done with all of this rebellion and sin. Death is not your savior. Jesus is. And the grace that God offers, when the Bible describes the grace that brings salvation, it is our teacher for the here and the now to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a great test, folks. That's a great test. Are you, are you living right? Are you ready to see Jesus? 
The Bible says that there's a crown of righteousness to all those who love his appearing. If you if Jesus were to split the sky right now, is there something you have to shudder and hide and try to get right and pray to God? There's some kind of car wash on the way up. Or are you would you rejoice at his appearing? Would your heart leap for joy? See, this is the great test. But this is biblical grace, not a covering. Not not a covering, but rather a teacher to live soberly, righteously and godly here. How, verse 14, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify him for himself, his own special people. That speaks of redemption and speaks of purity. Redemption says he is reattributing value. He is saying he's looking and saying there's value in you. And so it is when you understand your value. You understand that you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. When you understand that Jesus shed his blood for you, that means that your life has value, your soul has value, and that he will purify for himself. That purity belongs to him. He will purify. The Bible says that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. There's a cleansing power to the gospel. And he will cleanse. And he, and he does cleanse. But it's, it's a cleansing for a purpose. That he would purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Let's evaluate our zealousness. Once again, zealous is usually used in a negative concept in the Christian church. Now there's the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to zeal. But we're to be zealous for good works. Jesus says, zeal for my father's house has consumed me. It's eaten me up. We're to be zealous. It's okay to be excited for the things of God. It's okay to have a, a, a fire in your, in, your, in your words and in your heart towards the things of God. It's okay to be zealous. It just needs to be appropriate. Speak these things and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise. Spies you. Verse chapter 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities and to obey and be ready for every good work. That is an incredible compliment to zealousness. As willing to, to submit to the established authorities. Sometimes guys get too zealous and they don't want to submit. But notice how Paul puts zealous for good works and submission to authority right next to each other. Well, Holy Spirit did that in his wisdom. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. Hello. To speak evil of no one. See a lot of Christians that go after this ministry. They go after that ministry. And they want they, they to judge this, this concept and that concept. And they speak from partial view. And they don't have full understanding. And yet they run their mouth. Paul says speak evil of no one. Speak evil of no one. Peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For once again, we ourselves were also once foolish, past tense, old life, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy and hatred and hating one another. And this is a wonderful verse. 
But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So much wisdom there for my favorite Bible teacher's life verse. That the gospel was kindness to us. God's kindness towards us. That our God and Savior towards man appeared. And that we are saved not by our works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he's washed us. He's regenerated us. And he's made us new by Holy Spirit. He poured this out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Remember, salvation is through him, it's by him, and it's for him. It's through Jesus. Verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, that we are right with God by his grace. And remember, what is biblical grace? Go back to verse 11. Every time is in the next 30 days, every time you hear the word grace, I want you to think verse 11. This is biblical grace that the grace of God, which brings salvation, teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and live soberly, righteously and godly in this present age. That grace is our teacher that is constantly teaching us to trust him more, to love him more. And we're justified by his grace and by his grace, we've become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That we are heirs of the hope of eternal life. That there's an inheritance in the faith. You know, if, if, if someone walked in here and gave you a, a letter that said you had an uncle you didn't know about and you received an inheritance, you'd probably get a little Pentecostal in your step. You'd probably jump for joy a little bit. There'd be a little excitement. Maybe the mortgage would be paid off. Maybe you'd buy a boat. Maybe you'd finally take your wife to the Caribbean. You should take your wife to the Caribbean. But there, there'd be an excitement. And the Bible says that we have an inheritance. Verse 8. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly. Hello. I like that. Anytime Paul says, I want you to affirm something constantly, he's saying, I want you to put this on repeat and don't stop. I want this to be constantly taught in your churches amongst your small groups. And what is it? It's something you probably haven't heard in 10 years. That probably something that has a negative connotation in the church. But it's something that Paul says that he wants to be affirmed constantly. That those who believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Have you believed in God? Let's maintain good works. Let's maintain the works that are good and noble before God. Avoid foolish disputes. That's not the work. Avoid the genealogies. That's not the work. 
contentions and strivings about the law. That is not the work. Those are unprofitable and useless. Useless. Verse 10. Reject the divisive man after the first and second admonition. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinning and being self-condemned. This is it. Whoo. Someone who always finds a fault in everything. What they're really saying is there's a fault in me. Someone who always finds a fault in every worship song, in every sermon, in every church he ever goes to. There's always something wrong. There's a fault in them. You don't see people the way they are. You see people the way you are. And so if you need it in your heart, surrender that. Because Paul says here, reject that person after the second act. Warn them once, warn them twice. But then know that they're warped and they're sinning. Verse 12. You guys told me to pull the pistols out. I'll put them back in. <laughs> then I sent Artemis to you, Articus, to be diligent to come to Nicopolis. Once again, people, relationships, friends, brothers. For I've decided to spend the winter here. Send Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. So he's basically, what is he saying? When the church gets to a mature point, remember, we've just gone over the qualities of the eldership, the trainings of the saving grace of God, the heirs and grace and the responsibility. He told them what the work is. Don't do this. Make sure you're doing this. Maintain good works. And now what is he doing? He's sending out the next set of apostles to send to the next city. And what does he say right at the here? Make sure that they lack what? Make sure that they lack nothing. Make sure that they lack nothing. Take care of them. Financially provide for them so that they can share the gospel to the next city. And let our people also learn to maintain good works. To meet urgent needs that they be not unfruitful. All who are with me greet you and greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. That's the epistle of Titus. Now, notice a Titus is fiery. It's not a, uh, it's not a, uh, it's not, it's not a sleeper. It's not a, uh, it's not Song of Solomon. Titus is meant to be very practical and very convicting because uh, he's dealing with a, a, a drastic time in which there were false teachers creeping into the church that he has planted. And so he's having to set in order the things that remain. And when you, when you set a bone, you do it quickly. I mean, would you want a doctor to be setting your arm after it's broke for four hours? Would you rather have four hours of pain or four seconds of pain? Set it. Let it heal. And so that's what Paul's doing here. He's setting it quickly. And so... Let's pray. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be strengthened by your word and that you would set in our heart and mind the things that are out of alignment with you. We pray for areas of selfishness, God, that by your word 
and by sound doctrine, you would expose them and we would surrender them. Lord, we pray for a biblical understanding of grace that you're constantly teaching us to live more sacrificially, to live more unselfishly towards you. Lord, help show us what the good works in our life need to be. Lord, we've been told over and over again in your word to maintain good works. Can you just right now speak, Holy Spirit? Show us the good works you want us to maintain. If there's someone we need to serve, if there's someone we need to bless, if there's someone we need to disciple and bring into the faith and the fold, if there's someone who we know needs to hear the gospel, help us to be faithful and zealous towards maintaining good works that we would constantly remember that you want us to maintain good works. Help us, Holy Spirit. Amen.